Aftermath is brought to you by Art of Problem Solving, where we develop educational resources for motivated students, including textbooks, an online school, in-person learning centers, and a variety of online applications. We build the tools we wish we had when we were students. Welcome to Aftermath, where we talk to fascinating people in and around the STEM world about where they've been, where they are now, and how their passion for math helped them get there. I'm your host, Richard Russick. My guest today is Mark Kantrowitz. Mark followed up his studies in computer science and other areas at MIT and Carnegie Mellon in a natural way by becoming a leading expert on student financial aid, scholarships, and student loans. Along the way, Mark has published numerous books and launched several websites dedicated to these topics, as well as to some of his other deep interests, which include hairless cats, origami, latergrams, and Australian Aboriginal art. You're going to hear about Mark's mathematical background, including his experiences at selective summer programs like MOP and RSI, and how he made the decision to leave the conventional academic path in favor of helping people learn about how to plan and pay for college. Mark will share his insights into the financial challenges that the families of college-bound students currently face. He'll also share some of the lessons he's learned on his path to becoming a leading expert in his field, such as how to build a good relationship with the press and how to express complicated ideas in a way that's both simple and memorable. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thank you for having me. Now, many of our listeners are or were avid math contest participants. One test they particularly stress out about is the American Invitational Math Exam, the AMI. Now, I hear you might be responsible for the creation of that test. What's the story there? Well, I took the MAA exams before there was an AMI. And I was invited, twice invited to the training session for the U.S. Olympic math team, once as a sophomore and once as a junior. Okay. And the feeling was that if I had been identified sooner, um, perhaps by an exam like the AMI, uh, I might have been invited to the training session as a freshman and therefore would have been a better candidate for the you know, U.S. Olympic math team. So well, they added uh, the AMI soon after. Oh, awesome. Well, on behalf of my 17-year-old self, I'd like to thank you. I really enjoyed that test. Um, what was MOP like, the Math Olympiad program, when you went there as a student? Well, it alternated between uh, the U.S. Naval Academy and West Point. Mm -hmm. uh, and when we were at West Point that year, there were uh, all boys except for one girl. And at that time, West Point didn't have bathroom facilities for women. Oh boy. So there was a sign that we placed on the bathroom. On one side it said men, and the other side it said Nadine. That's fantastic. That's really fantastic. So how did you get into math competitions? Well, I like solving problems. Yeah. Uh, I first started solving word problems, a special kind of word problem called the laddergram or change the word problem, uh, when they appeared in a, a magazine called uh, Computing Magazine. All right. Um, there was a guy who wrote them called uh, his name Townsend or something like that. Uh, and he would post new, new problems and old problems challenge us to find simple solutions. And uh, I got really into it. And occasionally I would get copies of his puzzle books as prizes for being the person who okay. came up with the shortest solution. And you're how old when this is when you're doing these laddergrams? 
was six, seven years old. <laughs> um, and that got me into in Games Magazine, where you could actually get money for writing puzzles, and they published a few of my puzzles. And um, this is still when you're a kid. This is still your... Still when I was a kid. Yeah. Um, also, my father uh, had given each of us a TI-57 programmable calculator, which was uh, had only 50 programming steps and would challenge us to do various things with it. Uh, so um, examples included the game of one and zero, where you're trying to say either one or a zero, and the uh, calculator is trying to say one or a zero. It wins if it uh, guesses what you're going to guess, and you win if you okay. fool it. Okay. Uh, and programming that into 50 steps, also multi-precision factorial, was a real challenge and stretched uh, um, brain a little bit. Right. And supposedly the motivation was I could actually win money by... <laughs> Uh, solving problems and I just got into it and then my mother was a math teacher uh, and she had a lot of textbooks around the house including some of the MAA's uh, old exams uh, and I just uh, started digging into it and it was my main spare time hobby I would be spending a few hours a day taking practice exams and uh, reading uh, math textbooks on esoteric math yeah, that sounds familiar. Uh, so you, you do all this through middle school, through high school, and then what did you think you were going to end up doing when you headed off to college? Well, I thought I was going to major in math, which I did, and I was going to become a math professor. Uh, and I didn't anticipate anything else. Uh, so what and, happened? Oh, in college, I, um, I, I, I had an opportunity to explore other um, in topics, other fields, some of which I pursued and some of which I didn't. Uh, for example, one of my electives was astronomy. I found it fascinating, but I didn't pursue it as a career. Uh, on the other hand, um, I was very much interested in, uh, in the student newspaper. Um, I had been a uh, publisher of my high school newspaper, and I joined the MIT student newspaper and spent a lot of time there, uh, and I found it helpful long-term because it was a lot of practical experience with writing uh, and running a business. Uh, I became ultimately business manager for the newspaper to help keep it afloat. What was the attraction uh, of, of newspaper writing? Well, it's it's a very factual writing, uh, clear explanatory style, and the inverted pyramid style of writing where you start with the conclusion and then you start building up support for it in a way kind of like a mathematical proof but not the exact same order in which you present a proof um maybe the the way in which you initially think about the proof but uh and um precision of writing uh understanding what people don't understand helping make the complicated seem simple or more understandable, mm -hmm. and all those built into the, and helped with the development of websites later. And I was taking a topic, uh, planning and paying for college, that is inherently complicated, extremely detail-oriented, right. uh, and finding a way to explain it to students and their families who may not be financial literate, but in a way that can help them. 
And over the years, I would develop a variety of rules of thumb that uh, not only explained in, in practical terms how to handle uh, saving and paying for college, but also um, these rules of thumb influence behavior. And learned a lot in practice about what works and what doesn't for influencing behavior in positive directions. Influencing or, your and, own influencing your own behavior is what you're trying to do here? Or? Well, influence the behavior of the person who's hearing the rule of thumb. Okay. You want to help people. Mm -hmm. And a rule of thumb is a short, pithy saying that give, and builds in a little bit of wisdom. Okay. But if they can't remember it, or if it's hard to execute, it won't have an impact. To give an example of a previous rule of thumb that had been existent before my time was that your total debt to income ratio, student debt to service to income ratio, what your, your monthly payment should be no more than 10% of your monthly income. Okay. The problem with that is it's hard to remember uh, and it involves calculation. So you have to say, okay, what is my monthly right. payment going to be? That's a loan amortization. That's solving a nonlinear equation. Fairly complicated. Very few people do that in their head. They could use a calculator or plenty of loan payment calculators out there, but that's an extra step. You right. want to keep the number of steps as short as possible. And then calculating the ratio of the two numbers at 10% um, and turning your annual income into a monthly income and then calculating the ratio. So that's a, a fair number of steps. It's, it's calculations. Most people don't do math. Yeah. Yeah. Too much math. On the other hand, when I transformed it into a comparison of your total debt at graduation and your annual income, uh, it turns out that 10% is roughly around your total debt is less than your annual income. And it's a little bit off, but and with rules of thumb, you're simplifying, you're making yeah. things easier to understand it. And then became, you should aim to have total student debt at graduation, that's less than your annual starting salary. And that's easy to remember. It's no comparison. Math. It's easy to implement because it's a comparison of two numbers. Now, and predicting your income after graduation, and there are a variety of resources out there, but most people will have a general idea of, like, uh, if you're getting a bachelor of science degree in nursing, it's going to be sixty-seven thousand dollars. Getting a degree in underwater basket weaving, it doesn't pay as much. <laughs> And it also conveys a, a concept that you should keep your debt in sync with your income. Right. And I, so this rule of thumb actually influences behavior. It causes people to borrow less. When did you when did you learn this sort of a concept? This this idea of creating a rule of thumb that is powerful because you can actually remember it and use it. Like, is this something you were thinking about when you were writing newspapers and such? Well, when I started being interviewed. For because of the websites, okay. I mean, newspapers, TVs, radio programs—they all like sound bites. Mm. You can say it in ten seconds or less. It's more likely to be quoted than something that takes you half an hour to explain. Right. So that that was one source of pressure to have uh, pithy and, and short pieces of wisdom, rules of thumb. But it was also I'm talking with, and over the years I've probably talked with thousands upon thousands of students and parents right. and just trying to explain something to them. If you can explain it more simply and it's shorter, 
they're more likely to understand it. And then that takes less time to explain. Okay. Um, it's also trial and error. And initially, I would start, uh, I'd have an interview and I'd try explaining it one way. And sometimes it took off and sometimes it didn't. And then after a while, I started seeing the pattern and what I was saying that was effective. And obviously, I mean, once you find one effective way of expressing a concept, you just stick with it. That's right. Maybe you refine it a little bit over the years, but uh, you just stick with it. And over time, I mean, you accumulate a lot of these rules of thumb. It's very, I mean, if I'm talking with a reporter who says I'm, that they were talking with a student who had $50,000 in student loan debt, and they very quickly asked me, okay, what's the monthly payment on that? Right. Am I going to use a calculator to figure it out? Well, I, I had a rule of thumb that right. monthly payment on a 10-year repayment term, given the range of interest rates, was about 1% of the amount borrowed. So I could very quickly say, well, it's around $500 and answer questions based on that. So it's a luxury car payment. Right. Uh, and that was, um, it, you get these grab bag of tricks and tricks. tools that help you respond to interview questions. Kind of like the way with a math competition, you assemble a box of tricks and tools that let you solve that masking question really quickly. Right. right. Rather than having to figure out everything from scratch, um, like solving the quadratic equations from scratch, solving card and solution to the cubic from scratch. <laughs> it takes a little bit of time <laughs> and you don't have enough time to do that. So you've got memorized a whole bunch of tricks that work now. I wouldn't say that those tricks are easy to remember, but the ones that are easier to remember, you're more likely to remember. Right. How did you get on this path to begin with? Like what sent you barreling down the, the student aid path? Well, I was one of those kids who won a gazillion dollars for college. Mm -hmm. I mean, partly because of the math competitions. Mm -hmm. I won the state science fair with math projects uh, and scholarships and first awards four years in a row. Uh, I won a bunch of uh, math competitions and science competitions, uh, including scholarships, Westinghouse Science Talent Search, which is now known as the Regeneron Science Talent Search. Um, I was seventh place winner with a scholarship for that. Um, again, mo money was the kind of the motivation. Like, I can win money, yeah. I'll pay for college. Yeah. Um, and so that, that was part of it. Uh, I was a... Um, a student at the first year of what was then known as the Rickover Science Institute that was started by the Admiral H.G. Rickover Foundation. It's now known as the Research Science Institute, and uh, it's run by the Center for Excellence in Education, CEE.org. Right. Uh, and so the first year, I uh, was a student the first year, and then I came back as a counselor the second year. And one of the tasks I set for myself was to compile a list of scholarships oh. and fellowships for math and science students because there were no books on the topic. Interesting. There were general books, but nothing specialized for math and science students. And uh, every year I would add to that list. Um, at one point it was called 101 Scholarships for Math and Science Students. Right. And then somehow Prentice Hall heard about it and approached me about doing a book. That book uh, was published in 1993, right around when the web started. Okay. And when I received questions by email, rather than answer the questions again and again and again, I would respond, 
your question is answered on this web page. Here's how you get out on the web. Then I started proactively answering questions before they were asked, and the thing took on right. a life of itself. Okay, so you were a super pioneer of using the internet to communicate. It was with... one of the first 100 yeah. commercial websites on the web. Wow. What possessed you to do that? How, how did you see that? Well, I liked helping people. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, once you get started, um, it gets addictive because um, helping people is addictive. I mean, yeah. I would get fan mail every day from people who I had helped I and mean, telling me that it had saved them so much money or that they had won a scholarship or whatever that it, it, it had done. Sometimes just a simple thank you for answering my questions. Uh, and, and every month, the traffic to this website was doubling. And, and what possessed you to even build a website in the first place? You're, you're talking 1993, 94. I mean, I, I'm... I remember those times building websites wasn't an obvious thing to do. Well, I was uh, been involved in FAQ postings mm -hmm. uh, and not just about financial aid, but uh, computer science. So uh, I was heavily involved in programming language Lisp and artificial intelligence. I maintained the early versions of those FAQ newsgroup postings. Um, and it's kind of an outgrowth of that, um, but a, a better organized version. So you just kind of, in a sense, stumbled into this thing that it turned out to be enormously, I mean, you knew it was super useful because it would have been useful for you as a kid. And you saw it useful as your, for your students at RSI. Did you know even at that time it was going to be even more broadly useful? You're probably a college student at this time when you're assembling these I things. I was a grad student at the time. And I realized it was going to be useful, mm -hmm. uh, that it was going to help people. Um, I didn't see it as necessarily as a source of employment. It was right. my hobby, and I was actually putting substantial resources of my own into it. Um, I was motivated purely yeah. by helping people. Right. Uh, and I have an eidetic memory, so I remember pretty much everything that I read. and Not word for word, but I know right. where to, to get it. And so... I ended up reading the Federal Student Aid Handbook, which is a source of guidance from the U.S. Department of Education to yeah. uh, college financial aid administrators. Um, I um, so this this memory is this something you just have, or is it something that you trained to develop? No, I, I've just had it for yeah. a long time. I and I suppose reading uh, trains it. Yeah. Um, and as a child, I had a voracious appetite for reading. I would go to the local public library several times a week each time, bringing back two shopping bags full of books. Um, I would read all night long, uh, didn't need very much sleep. Uh, and so I would be reading a few books a day. Were your interests? Uh, on, on everything. Okay. Things. You're super eclectic. Fiction, fact, you, you name okay. it. Um, I read the entire children's section of the public library, and they had to give me an adult card as a young kid. Excellent. Um, because they had no books that I hadn't read, and about ten thousand books in that children's section. Yeah, that sounds great. I, what parents often ask me: What should they be doing with their five, six, and seven-year-olds to get them good at math? And I'm like, Let them read. Let them read everything yeah, they want to read. They're reading, and they'll teach themselves. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's great stuff. So you're you're starting on this. You you do this student financial aid stuff. You've built this website. You're still thinking of it this time as uh, as one of your your hobbies, something that you're doing for fun and to help people while you're doing something else. What else are you doing? And at what point does the student aid stuff become what it has become? 
while I was doing my graduate mm -hmm. research, natural language generation. Uh, and later on, uh, when I left grad school, uh, I was a research scientist at the software laboratory, uh, specializing in statistical language modeling, developing new algorithms and technology. And I have five patents from that time period. And um, the that was my day job. And my evening and weekend job was the websites, in expanding them, adding new content, writing new articles. Uh, and by the late 1990s, I had to decide, do I focus on the websites full-time or my day job full-time? I couldn't do both because there weren't enough hours in the day. Right. Not even, even though, for you. <laughs> uh, even though I don't require a lot of sleep, yeah. it still just wasn't enough time. So at that point, I decided to focus full-time on the websites, uh, quit my job as a research scientist, and... Uh, um, started working on these websites they were supported by uh, by this point by advertising okay um who's and, typically advertising on these sites are they universities are they banks um at that point in time it was a combination of universities and education lenders okay uh, also some uh, scholarships advertised oh, to try right. to reach more students though so, um some of these websites are scholarship matching services mm -hmm. that take your background and match it with a large database of scholarships but sometimes the scholarships want even more promotion than a simple match does. Right. So they uh, they want to encourage, uh, proactively encourage certain students to apply for their scholarships. Was it at all scary for you to jump from your regular research job? Or, or was it just, I can go back to that later if this doesn't work out? Oh, a little bit. I mean, I took a 40% pay cut in the process. Yeah. Um. But at that point in time, I was young, um, willing to take risks, um, didn't have to depend as much uh, on, I, I could weather a few years without yeah. any income if necessary. Um, yeah, I that, wasn't yet married. Yeah, that sounds familiar. And, uh, and, and I was also very good at investing. So um, I had a, a bit of a nest egg that I had already assembled over the years. So you had some room. Yeah, that's kind of the way I thought when I, I, I was a bond trader for four years and then left that to go find something else to do. And it was similar. It was like, ah, this is a little scary, but I'm 27. I don't have children. I can take these kinds of risks. And uh, and, and if I had been interested in the money, there were a lot of internets and web search firms that were yeah. looking to hire people like me. And one of my patents, Submarine Google, on their duplicate detection patent. So... Okay. Um, there, there was a lot of interest at that point in time, and most of my former colleagues ended up at Google. Um, Why didn't you but, go that route? Well, I didn't want to be a small gear in a big machine. Okay. And I figured I would do more good for society, helping people figure out how to pay for college and improving access to our higher education, especially by low-income students or students who are first in their family to go to college than I would by building a better web search engine. And, how, and I think I've clearly done that. Yeah, I'd like to hear more about that. Like, what are what are some of the things that you've been able to accomplish? Well, um, I conservatively estimate that I've helped more than 100 million people pay for college. That's a lot of people. I discovered the OE repayment status loophole. Uh, this was 
around 2002-2003, but the U.S. Department of Education didn't acknowledge its validity until 2005, which was the right time because um, interest rates on student loans had hit rock bottom. Okay. And this loophole allowed students to lock in what was then a variable rate as a fixed rate and to do it while they were still in school. So more than 2 million students were able to consolidate and lock in uh, rates as low as 2.88%. That's fantastic. Compared to where the interest rates could have gone, uh, conservatively, this has saved them over $2 billion in interest over the life of their loans. So how did you find this thing? And then how well, did you get get the word out? As far as finding it, I remember uh, I've read the Tire Higher Education Act, all the regulations, and the Federal Student Aid Handbook, approximately eight 9,000 pages total. And I remember most of what I read, and I can put disparate pieces of the statutory language together. Are you the and only person no, that has read the whole thing? Very few people have done this. <laughs> okay. um, it's... It's not a field that a lot of people go into, but I, I noticed two different sections of the Higher Education Act that interacted, and if you put them together in the right way with the cooperation of the lender, uh, a student who was in school could get their loans into repayment status early, mm -hmm. consolidate them to walk in the historically low rate, and then put them back into an in-school deferment. So they would lose their grace period, the six-month grace period after right. graduation, but they would gain this historically low interest rate. And after um, I worked with a reporter from the Wall Street Journal, uh, who uh, she wrote a story about it, and mm -hmm. her editor and her and you know, asked me again and again, "How sure are you that this is a valid loophole?" Yeah. And I said, it's absolutely a valid loophole. And so they went with the story even before they got confirmation from the U.S. Department of Education. And then two days later, because of the pressure from that story, the department acknowledged that it was a valid loophole. Uh, and that started um, Open the floodgates. a rush for yeah. its consolidation. In fact, the, the lenders were overwhelmed with the demand to consolidate the loans in school. That's and it was a win for the lenders. It was a win for the borrowers. So how did you get to the point where you're going to be able to talk to somebody at the Wall Street Journal about this? Well, I, I was, even that early, I was a leading expert on planning and paying for college, and I was very good at explaining concepts simply. Okay. So one of the benefits, the website was all about taking this incredibly detailed 8,000, 10,000 pages of information and distilling the insights and then describing it in a way that was very direct and said very practical in uh, explaining what it meant and uh, what you needed to do. Uh, and so the news media would approach me because they would Google a topic and, uh, well, before that it was Lycos or yeah. Yahoo, and they would find that I was... Um, they find my explanations and they find them easy to understand. And so they would reach out to me. Um, so the press came and to you. When, and, once I had, and once I had been interviewed a few times, then my name would come up every time they search for a topic. Okay. Uh, and then it just escalated. I mean, I've been quoted 
and well over 10,000 newspaper and magazine articles at this point. So that wasn't something you planned? That was something that just happened at the beginning? And then... Yeah, it wasn't something I had planned. It, it just started to happen, uh, and uh, you go with the flow. That was a good flow to get into. Yeah. And, and a lot of this is allowing serendipity a chance to operate. I kind of call it walking sideways. Yeah. When there's an opportunity that's interesting, you seize it. And you, you, you take it as far as you can take it. Um, I would have never predicted that I would be a publisher of websites. Um, and I thought I was going to be involved uh, in proving new mathematical theorems or developing new algorithms. Uh, I never would have predicted that this would become my life's work. Right. Is it still fun? Oh, absolutely. Um, and I just started uh, as publisher of savingforcollege.com mm -hmm. uh, June 1st, and just a few months ago. And it's similar to what I've been doing in the past, but it's a little bit different. And I'm developing new insights, uh, new rules of thumb, because now my focus has shifted a little bit, uh, not just about paying for college, but also right. about saving for college. Interesting. So, an example of a rule of thumb is that the ratio of your monthly payment to the amount you can save over a 17 year period is about 0.3%. So uh, for every 25 to $35 you save per month, you're going to accumulate about $10,000. Or uh, something that I discovered kind of interesting purely by accident, and then I proved it mathematically, was that if you take a student loan and you cut the interest rate in half, the reduction in the total payments of the life loan is the same as you would get if you were to cut the repayment term in half. And that's nice. not exactly obvious. Right. And in fact, it's, it's technically it isn't true because if you do the calculations, there is a slight difference. Mm -hmm. I mean, 0.05% to 0.13%. But when you express it as whole percentages, those slight differences disappear. Right. And relating it back to the mathematics, it's nonlinear equations, but you can express them as a Taylor expansion. And it, the difference is in the higher order terms of the Taylor expansion. And so when you're taking like a 1% difference in the interest rates, um, they all it's, go away. It, and you're cubing it, that's right. one in a thousand. Yeah. Um, so it's a very small difference when you're looking at it from uh, a rounding in the years per percent. So I'm, I'm guessing you often get the question of, is it worth going into debt for this college or that college? Which is a different question of how do I afford college? How do you handle those questions? Well, first of all, I mean, it's not worth going into ex uh, extreme debt. So if your total debt at graduation is going to exceed your annual starting salary, that rule of thumb, right. you should think twice about going to that more expensive college. But you should be, you should look at the net price of the college education. That's the discounted sticker price. It's what you will pay after taking into account grants and scholarships, money that doesn't need to be paid. That's really what the college is going to cost you. And you can look at it in one way is to compare it to your resources. Figure out your four years of net price and how much money you've saved, how much you can contribute from current income, and 
how much debt is reasonable and affordable. You compare the two. If your total debt and your total resources exceeds the net price of four years of college, recognizing that some people take longer, uh, then um, it's an affordable college. Okay. Uh, if it's uh, if your debt, um, if if your total resources are less, that means that you're going to have to borrow more money to pay for college. And so you really have to ask yourself: Is it worth? Um, go, is that better known college or right. better fit college really worth taking on additional debt? And what I find is that if the net price between two colleges differs by more than $5,000 a year, families always go with the cheaper college. If it's less than $1,000, they'll go with whichever one has the perceived better reputation. Okay. And in between, they agonize over the decision. Do you think they're so, making the right decisions? If those, well, the, the, the extremes where they're close, they're clearly making the right decision, but in the other direction? In the other direction, they, they might not always be making the right decision. And you hear these stories about students who graduate with a bachelor's degree and six-figure student loan debt, mm -hmm. which is less than 1% of students. And it's an extreme example. Well, about one-sixth of those students also have parents who are taking on six-figure student loan debt in addition to the student. So wow. it's not just the students who need financial literacy training. Sometimes it's the parents right. as well. And parents have a great difficulty saying no to their children. Yeah, that's they, right. They promise, you get in, we'll pay for it. And then the reality sets in, and they really can't afford to go to that college, but they've made a promise. And uh, they don't want uh, their child to say, you just ruined my life. <laughs> now, the reality is you can get a great quality education at an in-state public college for a third to a quarter of the price. So you should always consider your in-state public college. And uh, you'll probably find that there there's a nexus of good people there, too. And after all, the Ivy League institutions, MIT and Stanford, graduate more PhDs in a year than they hire as faculty. So right. all those PhDs have to go somewhere to teach. Right. Yep. So you're going to get great quality education, maybe even better quality education because of greater focus on teaching. Yeah, closer at these attention. Public colleges. So I, I read a lot about student debt possibly being this huge systemic problem in the United States. Is that an accurate fear? Not really. I not yet. I and mean, ask me again in twenty years and maybe at that point in yeah. time. And there's one point five trillion dollars in student loan debt outstanding. People pay attention to milestones. So there's mm -hmm. more student loan debt than there's auto loans uh, or credit cards. But um it's eclipsed by mortgage debt. And I mean, student loan debt is paid back over ye I mean, years to decades, whereas credit cards are months okay. to years. Um, Mortgages at least have houses behind them most of the time, but some, but not in 2007, eight. <laughs> well, on average, people are graduating yeah. with a reasonable amount of debt. Yeah. Average debt of graduation is for a bachelor's degree is $30,000. And the average starting salary is about $50,000. And going back to that rule of thumb, total okay. debt less than income. So most people are, are graduating with an amount of debt that they can afford to repay in 10 years or less. The problem occurs in two areas. When people vary from the averages, mm -hmm. so they graduate with far more debt and go into a field of study that pays less. 
But that really isn't the bulk of the problem. I mean, most people who have bachelor's degrees do not default under student loans. Instead, we don't really have a student loan problem so much as a college completion problem. Uh, yes. Students who drop out of college, they have the debt, but they don't have the degree that can help them repay the debt. So the people who drop out of college are four times more likely to default on their student loans than mm -hmm. students who graduate. And they represent about two thirds of the defaults. Okay. And that's where the real problem is. I, we have an average degree attainment rate of about 60% almost uh, for bachelor degrees. That means 40% of the students do not graduate with a bachelor's degree within six years. Right. That's where the problem is. That's where the problem is. And we need to find ways to educate these students about their loan repayment options because students who graduate go through what's called exit counseling where they learn that, yes, you're obligated to repay these student loans and here's your options for repaying them. Students who drop out don't go through exit counseling. So they're not as aware of all the options for making these loan payments more affordable. Um, but it's also, in, we're getting these students into college, but we're not necessarily giving them what they need in order to graduate. I mean, the number one reason why people drop out of college is money. Number two is conflicts between school, home, and work. Because if they don't have enough money, they're going to be working while in college. Now, if you work up to 12 hours a week, you're actually going to improve your academic performance compared to someone who doesn't work at all. It's a very slight improvement. Mm -hmm. But every hour beyond 12 takes away too much time from academics. So someone who is working a full-time job while going to college is half as likely to graduate. And that's where we have the problem, is that as a, as a nation, we are not investing enough in post-secondary education. We need to make sure that college is more affordable. Someone who is, has the lowest academic performance among wealthy individuals is six times more likely to enroll in college uh, and graduate from college than someone who has the top academic performance among low-income students. And that's just not right. Yeah. Just because you're wealthy doesn't mean you have a monopoly on intelligence. So where's the lever to fix these things? Like, where would well, you start? You have to follow the money, and the major source of money is always the federal and state governments. Mm -hmm. And over the last 60 years, federal and state support of post-secondary education on a per-student inflation-adjusted basis has been declining. And what that does is it shifts the burden of paying for college from the government to the families. And uh, the families, uh, they don't have more money. And family income has been flat since the year 2000. So the only form of aid that has any degree of elasticity is the student loans. So the families are doing one or two things. Either they're borrowing more, which is where we get this student loan problem in, in a way, or they're shifting their enrollment to lower cost colleges. And that shift in enrollment patterns is not just from private colleges to mm -hmm. public colleges, where the quality of education and maybe you're not losing anything, but also from four-year to two-year, two-year to one-year programs, and one-year to no post-secondary education at all. And that's a, where the real problem is, in that college-capable, low-income students are not enrolling in college because of the money. If you tell a kid, you're going to have to borrow more for your college education than your parents earn in a year, it has a chilling effect on their enrollment. Yeah, absolutely.
So on that cheery note, <laughs> you have a lot of interests outside student debt. Now, one in particular uh, overlaps with a lot of the people in the AOPS office, and you've mentioned it already, and many of our students, and that's your involvement with the Center for Excell Excellence in Education. Uh, can you tell us a bit about what CE is, what they do, and how you stayed involved after being a, a student of one of their programs? So the Center for Excellence in Education uh, runs three main programs. The Research Science Institute, which is a six-week um, research internship program uh, between the junior and senior years in high school. Mm -hmm. uh, then there's the USA Biology Olympiad and uh, the uh, Teacher Enroll uh, Enrichment Project. Uh, and the, out the, the source of TAP uh, was that uh, we noticed that the students in the, uh, who took the USA Biology Olympiad were a little bit lacking in uh, lab skills. Okay. So the goal was a kind of teach the teachers approach to improving uh, preparation. And it, it certainly has had an impact and it's, the teachers love it and uh, it indirectly is affecting the students. Uh, and um, we've always wanted to find a way to improve science and math education in the US overall um, not just the most talented students. The RSI program is based entirely on academic merit. Uh, it's harder to get into than any college in the U.S. Yeah, it's free, it's right? Less than 5% of yeah. the students. And uh, these students are amazing. I mean, they are right. extremely talented. I, uh, one year I was uh, a judge of the oral presentations and there was this one girl who described her project involving a cure for cancer, where she showed that there were two drugs, and she discovered that they were each attacking a different metabolic pathway. And she proposed combination chemotherapy because when she attacked one metabolic pathway, the cancer would shift to the other metabolic pathway. Okay. And so by doing combination chemotherapy, she was able to close out both metabolic pathways and in substantially improve the cure rate. And that was, that was just amazing work by a 17-year-old. Yeah, that's fantastic. They're really capable of doing amazing things if we just get out of their way, <laughs> enable them, empower and, and, them. And there's a synergy that goes on there. When you take students who are top of their field, who are um, maybe best in their state, who have never experienced the challenge of someone who was as smart, if not smarter than they are, and you throw them together, they bounce off of each other in the walls, and you, you have right. this magic occur. And, and so that's part of the uh, the promise and value of a program like RSI is that it's taking the best and getting them to do better than they ever would have expected. Yeah, one of our earlier guests um, met his wife at RSI, so. That's a particularly powerful combination of students at RSI. And uh, society as a whole benefits from this. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So what would you suggest to students who want to follow in your, in your footsteps? And to, to specify, there are students who want to maintain an independence and a freedom, as you have, while establishing a recognized deep expertise in a particular field. Well, I think the first thing is be the best at whatever you are. And uh, constantly try to improve. You're, you're not competing with anybody else. You're competing with yourself. 
and you set a goal and every day you think about how can I achieve this goal long term um, and, and do a better job every single day. And then you start with an important problem. I mean, a problem that affects society as a whole. Within any problem, there work solutions. And the ones involved, the problems that involve people are the most challenging problems. And they're much more challenging than uh, a math problem. And mathematics does play a role in a lot of uh, what I do. I mean, it, it helps to take an analytic approach to examining these problems and looking at the intersections between different aspects of the problem. And uh, it helps if you pick a problem where there hasn't been a lot of um, work on trying to solve it, because then everything you do is new. And right. you, if you ask an interesting question, regardless whether the answer is yes or no, it's going to yield an interesting result. So, and so when I write a paper on um, some of these phenomena, uh, I um, I know a lot of people are going to read it because it it's a tackling an interesting problem. And these days, I don't even I mean, submit my work to journals, though I serve on the board of a journal, uh, because the people who um, in, for who matter, right. and the policymakers, all of them read what I write. Um, and if I were to submit it to a journal. It would take an additional year or two before the uh, articles were published and uh, maybe be a little stale by then, or I may have been much better just get the information out quickly. Yeah, it's possible and, more of them are reading your website than reading those journals anyway. Oh, millions of people read the websites every yeah. year. Yeah, and, that, I, and when you talk about the people that matter, I mean, you're talking about the parents and the students that are really going to benefit in the end. Right, um, and also the people who can potentially implement solutions. So members of Congress, uh, people who work for federal and state agencies, they can take a new insight, a new tool that I create, and they can use it to uh, change uh, what they do, change the policy, create new um, repayment plans, for example. And I was involved in the development of income-based repayment. I created a calculator that um, I call the policy version of the calculator that let people play what if games. What if the percentage of the discretionary income was different? What if the definition of discretionary income was different? What if uh, we forgave uh, interest after a certain point in time? And th this led to the development of income-based repayment and public service loan forgiveness because they had this tool that they could use to play different games and see what, what would be the cost of implementing a particular policy. What would be the um, benefits of it? How did you get that tool into the hands of the right people? Like, how do you get invited to testify before Congress on these sorts of things? Well, and usually um, policymakers approach me. They have a problem they want to solve, and they want to know what the data is on that topic. And I give very rapid turnaround in analyzing problem. And usually when I analyze a problem, I'm not just answering their immediate question. Uh, it's like playing a game of chess. I'm answering the current mm -hmm. question, the next iteration, the one after that, and so on and so on, uh, to give a complete solution to the true underlying problem. That's fantastic. Well, in closing, I'd like to give you the floor to let people know where they can find out more about your work. You've mentioned a number of your websites here, and I want to give you a chance to point people at them. 
So current website is savingforcollege.com. Uh, it's where you, it's the top resource for um, college savings plans, 529 plans, prepaid tuition, Coverdell education savings accounts, um, ABLE accounts, these 529A for disabled children. Um, we are, if you Google anything on these topics, we're usually the top result. And we are not just doing saving for college, we're also doing other aspects like student loans, scholarships, and the like. And there's kind of a uh, homeostasis between student loans and scholar and saving for college because every dollar you save is a dollar less you're going to have to borrow. And so the solution to the student loan debt problem is to increase investment and saving for college. Um, my previous websites uh, have included FinAid and FastWeb and Advisors and CapEx. Um, I have uh, a website where you can find all my student aid policy papers, and that's studentaidpolicy.com. Um, I have a website uh, devoted to my puzzle books, uh, laddergrams.com. Uh, and um, if you go to cantwist.com, you can find links to a lot of my other websites. I have uh, websites about um, chocolate. Yeah. Uh, website uh, about um, origami. And that was, again, happened upon an exhibit by an origami club uh, around the holidays. They had a tree that they had decorated. Uh, and I remember that as a kid, I used to be able to do that. Um, I did the uh, origami crane and the water bomb that everybody did. And so I said, okay. I'll, I'll buy a book and start on it. And what I didn't realize is that I had started on the most challenging <laughs> origami. So when I finally showed up at one of these clubs, I couldn't do the simple stuff. I could only do the more complicated models that involved over 100 volts. Interesting. Um, so what did the other people uh, take make of you? <laughs> well, and they're, they're always amazed at the models, and they... Um, and every so often I would have to teach one of these models and it would be take a while to teach because there are so many folds, but I would give them the insights into pre-folding certain creases so that they wouldn't tear and, and things like that and okay. curated an exhibit uh, called wings and things at the national aviary of origami flying creatures. Wow. And uh, it also came in handy later on when I worked for a Japanese company. Mm -hmm. And we would fly to Japan every so often and have these long meetings where long periods of quiet and nothing to do. So I'd fold a piece of origami under the table That's... and set it out on the table uh, every so often, once every half hour. Right. And then I would leave them. And I later heard that there were fights over who got to keep them. <laughs> Just like we don't do very much cutouts and other than the cutout strings of dolls right. as kids. The Japanese, they most of them just do the um, origami crane and they can't do the more complicated. I mean, there, there are some, I mean, like Yoshizawa has done over 90,000, designed over 90,000 different models over his lifetime. Mm -hmm. um, but um, Yoshizawa-san is an exception to the rule. Okay. Um, whereas... The um, these models were they were seen as unusual, and it was also gained me some respect that 
here I was a gaijin able to uh, actually right. do something that they thought would be beyond uh, non-Japanese person. That's right. You can master their art form. And the, the other fun thing is I would go into these Japanese bookstores and they all had origami sections with books and by the handful of artists who were capable of doing new designs and some actually involved in the mathematics of origami and folding. Uh, and uh, I didn't need to be able to read Japanese to be able to appreciate them. Right. So I, I would always, every trip, I would bring back a dozen origami books uh, and then fold some of the more complicated uh, models. So my, way easier. Go ahead. Yeah, my two favorite models that I've ever folded. One is a Tasmanian devil, which is some, it's around 200 folds. The other is a Jacklin box that pops out. You start with a two foot by four foot sheet of paper and it takes you literally a few days to fold. Oh my goodness. But it, and it looks like a Jack in the box. It actually functions. Um, and it's completely out of a single sheet of paper. So when you, you obviously go very deep into the hobbies that you get really into, do you go like, do you start to get interested in lots of things and then stop at certain points? Or is it just, if you're going to get interested, you're going to get way interested and you're going to stay interested. I get way interested. I jump in on the deep end and I will continue with it for quite some time. So is that years you're talking about? Like your, your interests stay with you and you, do you know right away? I usually, yes. I and mean, if it's, I, mean, I can recognize something that's likely to become a hobby because it usually has a lot of intricacies, um, a lot of steps, mm -hmm. a lot of detail, a lot of complexity. And those are the things that uh, seem to attract me. Uh, very much gadgets, um, folding, um, another area, and this had nothing to do with my working for a Japanese firm. Mm -hmm. uh, there are these vintage Japanese battery-operated toys, the tin toys from the 1950s, that involved a bunch of actions, like uh, banging on a drum, right. or there's a, a monkey, musical jolly chimp, that has two symbols that it clashes together, and you see these in every single horror yeah. movie. Um, and uh, what people don't know is if you bang that chimp on the middle of its head, it stops banging the symbols. Instead, its eyes bug out, its mouth opens, and it screeches, and then it returns <laughs> to banging the symbols. Um, but I, I would buy um, some of these uh, and various states of disrepair. And usually between two of them, there were enough parts for me to fix them and mm -hmm. reassemble a working example. Or sometimes I had to fabricate my own parts. There are, there are ones mm -hmm. where it blows bubbles and soap bubbles. And uh, those usually, the bellows uh, deteriorate with age and you have to replace have to the, fix the bubbles. Well, it certainly sounds like these deep dives have been very fruitful for you. It sounds like that even more than your uh, memory and your ability at math might be your superpower. So, I think math is the ultimate superpower. <laughs> yeah, I like to think so, too. Well, my guest today has been Mark Kantrowitz. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Aftermath. You can find show notes for this and other episodes on our website at aops.com slash aftermath. 
We want more people to discover this podcast, so if you like this episode, please take a moment to share it with others you think will enjoy it. Then head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate us, and leave a review. I'm Richard Russick. See you next time. Aftermath is brought to you by Art of Problem Solving, through which we've had the opportunity to work with hundreds of thousands of eager math students around the world. Our textbooks, online school, in-person learning centers, and various online resources empower students to develop the skills they'll need for success at top-tier universities and in internationally competitive careers. Come check us out at aops.com.